I'm Teffer. And I'm Bailey. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club and you're invited. Yeah. Yeah. We'd like to take this time to acknowledge that the studio where we record is situated within the traditional and unsurrendered territories of the Ganyangahaga First Nations. As settlers, it's important that we remember when the lands we occupy are not our own, and that we engage in conversations that challenge the colonial mindset. We encourage you to take some time today, and every day, to reflect on your relationship with the land you live on and the indigenous communities of that area. So this week, it's just us two, and we're here to talk about the third summer of the sisterhood, the aptly named Girls in Pants by Anne Brashares. Do you want to know my bold take on this book? I do. It's the best installment of the series, but with the worst title. Do Okay, I agree with you with it being the best installment of the series, I think, because I haven't read the fourth one in a long time. But do we really think Girls in Pants is a worse title than The Second Summer of the Sisterhood? I think it is. Okay. It is the closest to the French title. True. (laughs) Four Girls, One Jean, which is... Four Girls, a Jean, I think, is what these books should be called. So the second time of the sisterhood is boring, but Girls in Pants is just a little bit ridiculous. Wow, Bailey. Okay. <laughs> and it's not like you heard it here first. Bailey does not any... think girls should wear pants. <laughs> Bailey believes Bailey said. believes girls should only wear skirts and aprons <laughs> and be in the kitchen. You or heard it here first. Be nude on their bottom halves. That's an option too. Really, I don't think you're. I don't think you're getting out of this hole. No, I'm not. I'm just making it more absurd. I, <laughs> that is not what I. No do. pants for girls. That's the end of our review. This book is an abomination. I burned mine. Oh. Thanks for listening to yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um yes, so I am I am a misogynist. That is that is me. Absolutely. Yes. I think that girls should wear dresses and stay in the kitchen. We call you Billy uh, the misogynist Eastwood. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> I transitioned because I hate women. You know I didn't want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right, I said it for you. <laughs> All right, so, um, Bailey, how did you feel reading this book about your two least favorite things, girls and pants? You're the worst, for the record. Uh, I, like, I feel nostalgic, cozy feelings about all of the Sisterhood books, even though there are many terrible parts to them. I like this one, like, genuinely more than the others. Like, there, there are, there are, it has its terrible bits, it has its, like, why the fuck do we need to introduce this unnecessary fat phobia? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Parts. Right at the 11th hour, too. Just, like, right under yeah. the wire. You know what we haven't done yet? Said <laughs> fat that phobia. fat people don't deserve love. <laughs> <laughs> <Oof>. Yeah. <laughs> so, hate that. 
uh, hate the weird ableism, which we will talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of storylines in this book that I think are good and are well done. And there's like some cute romances happening. Um, I like all the art stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's a lot that this book gets right. I think and that is my feeling. Lena's storyline is the clear winner in this one. Mm, it's really fair. good for me bees is a really close runner up um something that kept coming up while i was reading this is something Eunice said in our review of the first book which is that these books to her don't read like ya they read like women's lit mm. and as i was we women's fic and as i was reading this one i was kind of thinking i was wondering if maybe the reason this book is better um, and in my opinion, the later books are better, is just that Amber Shares is better at writing older women <laughs> and is better at writing more complex adult situations. And, you know, we talked about in the first book the problems and the reasoning and the thoughts being unrealistic for 15-year-olds. Mm, that's fair, because I do I do think that the the last one, which we're, like, the, the extra one, which we're going to read, is quite well done in a lot of ways. Um, I, I agree. I think the last one is, it, I like it a lot. I think it's a very good book. We'll see when I go back to it. I think it has something to do with it being written in, like, 2015 as well. It doesn't yeah. suffer quite as much from uh, the failings of the early aughts Um, yeah yeah but I really like this one and you know what let's just dive right into something I like about it let's just dive right into my problematic fave um which is the romance between Bridget and Eric because the romance between Bridget and Eric in this book is what should have been their first romance Mm -hmm. (laughs) like they just should never have met or like hooked up and I almost feel like this book is kind of Anne Brashear's, like, apology for that a little bit. I don't think it's handled very well. No. But she at least acknowledges by giving Bridget a camper who has a crush on her who has the same age gap that moment of, like, ooh. And gives the reader that moment of, like, oh, yeah, coaches and their campers should not mm-hmm. have a thing. Now, I think she kind of blows that up with Eric's, like exceptionalist response of just like but we our love is special and unique however i'm not talking about it with a critical eye i'm i'm acknowledging (laughs) i'm acknowledging that criticism that criticism stands and it holds when i just ignore that shit (laughs) and i when we ignore that and pretend eric isn't four years older than her yeah because she's not 18 yet Again. Yeah. So in this book, in my head canon, the way I read this is that she's 17 and he's still 19 because he hasn't aged. And so mm, now fair. they're like they're like appropriately uh, um, age gapped and they are colleagues instead of it with a power differential. I think the four mm-hmm. years doesn't matter quite as much when you're colleagues, but it does matter because she's 17. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think... I think 18-year-olds and 22-year-olds dating is fine. It raises, like, at least an eyebrow for me, but it's certainly not the same as a 15-year-old and a 19-year-old, that's for sure. Yeah, well, because it is, for one thing, not illegal. However, Bridget is 
Bridget is not yet 18. I'm doing a really bad job of not being critical of this, am I? Aren't I? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not helping. It's okay. So, okay. So if I take all of that and I see this, if I read this book as a standalone and I somebody had ripped out the pages <laughs> where... <laughs> Where the previous uh, situation is fumbled so badly. The romance is really good. Like the way it's Mm -hmm. written. The fact I love a good friends to lovers. And I love the tension of we're friends. Because we have to be friends. Because we have these things that aren't going to permit us to hook up or like date or whatever. But we want each other so badly. (laughs) Um, that's just like a dynamic in fiction that really, really gets me. Uh, I love the slow burn. I love the like being really comfortable with each other while also acknowledging that you want to rip each other's clothes off. Like that just is, uh, it's so good. And I really like Bridget. You know, we see Bridget more mature in this one. We see Mm -hmm. Bridget like excited and obsessed with Eric, but also toning herself down, taking a step back and going, what's going to be good for me here? And it's nice. I like I like reading it with the exception of a handful of paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I I like Bridget's story in this one. Like I have to yeah, I have to put that filter on it and like pretend several things are not the way that they are written. But um yeah, and I like I like her sort of character growth and everything. Mm-hmm. And I find the soccer conclusion very satisfying also. Um, who thought I cared about soccer? <laughs> yeah, seeing Bridget come into her own as a coach is really nice. And mm-hmm. seeing Bridget, like, seeing Bridget as a mentor um, yeah. is really, really, really nice. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what's going on this summer? This summer, Bridget is at soccer camp meeting Eric again. And uh, that reminds me of another thing I found super relatable. When she goes in and she sees him and she's like, what the hell, Eric is here? And she's like, I didn't know you were going to be here. And he's like, I did because your name is on the staff list. And she's like, oh, right, I didn't look at the staff list. It's like those, those moments for me are why I relate to Bridget. Because I do relate to Bridget on a few levels. And... Um, that moment of just like oh right there was a staff list I did not look at the orientation packet I did not do any of my homework because I'm good enough (laughs) to just like (laughs) come in here and do the thing and I'm not used to having to prepare super relatable just all of that kind of awkwardness of like oh he's this huge monumental figure in my past am I also like significant in his past or like not or like does he remember like All of that Mm -hmm. I thought was handled really nicely. So Bridget's at camp reconnecting. Carmen's Mm -hmm. mom is having a baby and Carmen's having all kinds of uncharitable feelings. But I also really like Carmen's storyline, her like internal emotional storyline. Yeah, I like Carmen's storyline a lot in Mm -hmm. this one. Carmen and Valia's storyline. Yeah, so she Carmen's mom is having a baby. She's very upset about it. She is uh, looking after Lena. Lena, Lena, I never know. Lena's very cranky grandmother. Yeah. Well, grieving and depressed grandmother, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Uh-oh. cranky because she is grieving and depressed. Yeah. Yeah. These, those all coexist. Yeah. So Carmen ends up being the, like, in-home aide for Valia. And I, I liked seeing Carmen acknowledged and celebrated as the nurturer she is. Because, like, Carmen's whole storyline is her going... 
being very self-critical and being like, I can't just be happy for my mom having a baby and I can't just be nice to people and I'm cranky all the time. And then she meets a guy who always runs into her when she's doing kind things for people. And instead of acknowledging that she's doing these kind things for people, she goes, oh, he thinks I'm nice because he keeps running into me doing nice things, but I'm not actually nice. I'm like a horrible mean person who just like like she acts as though the kind things she's doing are like a performance to make him like her even Mm -hmm. though she's not doing any of them thinking that he's going to see it and like the power of seeing yourself through somebody else's eyes is so significant and I really liked seeing Carmen go through that journey yeah yeah no I really I really love that and it's it's yeah it's so interesting because like it starts with her like, it actually is a little bit true. Like, she thinks that he thinks that she is just sort of looking after her friend's grandmother as a favor, as a kind thing, where she is getting paid for it. So that's where it starts. But then there are all these other things that it's like, no, these are actual kind, generous things that you are just doing, but you want to discount them. I also really like there's a conversation she has, I think it's with Lena, mm-hmm. um, where, like, she's talking with this and, and Lena's like, are you sure that you're not good, Carmen? Yeah. And she's like, no, I am not. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Carmen is so, so self-critical, like more than any of the Mm -hmm. other four. Carmen is so hypercritical of herself. And I think the reason she gets cranky with other people is, in fact, because her hypercritical nature, which is mostly turned on herself, also picks up other people in, in its radar. And we saw this in the mm-hmm. last book with um, her obsessing over Parker's legs. Porter? What was his <laughs> name? It was like a, one, of those, one of those boy names. Porter. Yeah. Um, where she's like obsessing about like, oh, is this detail wrong? Is this detail wrong? Is this re- detail wrong? Um, mm-hmm. But you'll notice in this one with Wynne, she doesn't do that. Like mm. with Wynne, she's only admiring him. And I think that's mm-hmm. a very beautiful mirroring, right? Of like when you meet somebody who sees the good in you, you see the good in them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really nice. I also really mm-hmm. like how Carmen has these storylines, and we'll see this continue, where she meets people who have a significant impact on her life and on herself who don't continue. Like they're, they're one mm-hmm. summer people who really impact her and help her grow. And I really love that while Amber Shares is writing like Eric and Costa and or Costas and um, Brian, she lets Carmen just kind of explore herself. Carmen's relationship is with herself. And that's very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also really like that. I You were talking a minute ago about how you relate to Guy strongly. Carmen was not ever the character when I was a teenager who I liked felt like I related to or wanted to be but there are definitely a lot of like ways that Carmen is that I can very much relate to mm-hmm. and one of them is this sort of way in which Carmen is like I have done one bad thing and therefore I am not capable of being good ever and I yeah I, I relate hard to Carmen's like a good Carmen bad Carmen thing well and it's so interesting right that she has this urge mm-hmm. more than any of the others to have this duality where she has good Carmen and bad Carmen instead of just Carmen who does things yes yeah. And occasionally yeah, makes exactly. up, messes up, and messing up is okay. And occasionally does kind things, and that's also okay. Like, she has this very, like, either I'm all good or I'm all bad, and I cannot be in between. Yeah. But yeah, I love Carmen's storyline, and I love her exploration of herself, and then also her, like, the ways in which she, like, manages to also come out of herself throughout the the story, and particularly how she is the one who kind of, like, 
notices and advocates for Valia is like really beautiful and like a really important, I think, marker of her like how she is able to grow and see things that are happening outside of her and and exercise like the empathy, which is, I think, a really important part of her character. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Carmen coming in and being able to see Valia as her own person. We talk this this book is in many, many ways about perspective and seeing and we see that come up Mm -hmm. in in Lena's storyline as well but it it really is about what I mean ironically given its instances of ableism and and, and horrific anti-fat bias uh, it is very much a book that is about empathy and seeing people and uh, Mm -hmm. you know Carmen being able to see her mother and her mother's baby and husband as a nice thing for her mother rather than something that requires Carmen to do things and Mm -hmm. Carmen seeing Valia as a person and helping Lena's family see Valia as a person um Mm -hmm. and and Lena learning you know we have this beautiful series of her doing portraits which I think we're absolutely going to talk about I feel like we're saving that one because we're going to get really into it um yeah and B learning to see Eric as just a person right like this is the book Mm -hmm. where where Eric goes from being this sort of figure this like symbol to being a person that she talks with and hangs out with and like Mm -hmm. sees different sides of and like like calls out yeah absolutely uh should we jump into lena yes so i want to preface our jumping into lena (laughs) sounds a little gory (laughs) with saying which i know we've talked about before on the show but bailey and i met in an art class an art class taught by a handsome Greek man, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, but we met in art class and figure drawing class, actually. Yeah, specifically figure drawing Specifically class. figure drawing. So there was a lot of fun nostalgia in reading the figure drawing um, yeah. portions of this book. And I was like, oh, I'm really happy that you and I are doing this episode because that's really cute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. It's very fun. <laughs> Yeah, I love, I really like the art. It, like, I like how Lena talks about art in this one. And I also like that her storyline really revolves around her sort of like using her art to sort of help her figure out what is happening mm-hmm. in her life and in the lives of people around her. So the, the very short recap is she... um needs to get a scholarship if she's going to go to art school because her dad decides that he doesn't want to pay for her to go to art school. And so she ends up um, deciding to do a series of portraits of her people close to her. And like the, the sort of the thing that she has to do is sort of figure out how to really see the people that she's drawing in order to um, in order to draw them well yeah. and and in doing so she sort of like figures out a bunch of different things about her relationships with other people in her life and also with herself and it's really beautiful mm-hmm. yeah so it starts with her taking this figure drawing class and then her dad happens to walk into the figure drawing class they have a male model. He did not realize what a figure drawing class was, and he freaks out because he doesn't want Lena mm-hmm. seeing a naked man in her art class and tries to pull her out. And then we see Lena breaking her dutiful mold for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like, she's always been somebody who tries to just do what other people want her to do. But 
she's also never been asked to sacrifice something this important to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like the role that her art teacher, Anik, plays in this. Yeah. Um, this is one of the few times that we see an adult acting kindly and responsibly <laughs> towards one of the sisterhood. <laughs> and I think Anik does such a good job. Like, there are a few moments where we yeah. see her almost try to do something for Lena and then go, no, no, I have to see if she wants it enough to fight for it. Yeah, I love the moment where she's talking to Lena but needing to do a scholarship and she starts saying, oh, I could call my friend who works there and then she stops herself. Yeah. Because exactly like she said, it's like, no, she she has to do this herself. Yeah. Yeah. I related, I mean, I know we've talked about both of us relating to Lena in this book as teenagers because we were both artistic mm-hmm. teenagers. I related yeah. very much to her and I was an artistic teenager who gave up on art school as soon as my parents said no. Um, mm. And so having this storyline as a teenager, even though it was not something I could imagine myself doing, um, was very healing and was very encouraging. And going back to it also and seeing like seeing that happen and seeing that Lena does it in her own respectful way as well. Like Mm -hmm. when she gets the scholarship and decides that she's going and goes to tell her dad, she does it very maturely and very I mean, which is, you know, I don't think maturity is necessarily something we should like encourage and demand of teenagers, but it's Lena's Mm -hmm. way to do things in an adult way. And her parents accept it and, like, apologize. And that's really lovely. I would, but, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, yes, so Anik encourages Lena, but she's very tough love about it. Mm-hmm, yeah. And and she's always just very much like, okay, well, do you do you want to keep doing this? Well, yeah, I want to keep doing this, but I, well, then keep doing it. <laughs> um, yeah. Which is true with any kind of creative work you just have to keep doing it but we had talked last week caddy brought up that lena is always doing landscapes and that it seems like kind of a disservice that she never gets to do anything more immediate and human she's always sort of detached Mm -hmm. and i said just you wait we will talk about this Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i want to talk about detachment and engagement and landscape and portrait and sort of the way this journey operates in Lena's life. Mm-hmm. Because I think more than it being like, yes, there's the human element, there's the getting into people, but it's also about distance. When you're painting a landscape, you're way far away from it, usually. Mm-hmm. And when you're painting or drawing a portrait, you're immediately intimate with your subject. Mm -hmm. Um, And in a book that is so much about Lena confronting her talent, I think that works extremely well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also very much about, and it's interesting if you're seeing landscapes and portraits as sort of being opposed to each other, how we can see figure drawing is kind of in the middle. Um, Because it's also very much about her inviting, inviting emotion and reflection into the work that she is doing yes um which is not something that you cannot do with landscapes but it's not necessarily something that she has done as much with landscapes um but it's very much about like it's exploring the way that um like her being willing and able to invite emotion and reflection into her drawings is how 
um, they become great. Mm -hmm. Well, and when you're studying art, you don't get to carve yourself into your little niche from the beginning. No. Because, I mean, you could arguably say that in order to evoke emotion and feeling in a landscape, you need to do figure drawing and draw portraits and figure out the human emotion of the human body and then transpose that. And we see that, actually. We see Lena talking about her father's face as a topographical map um, Mm -hmm. where she is she's mapping out sort of the years and the feelings on his face. And uh, she was always going to have to expand her repertoire if she wanted Mm -hmm. to pursue art. And we do see her as an adult going back to landscapes. But, you know, you have to stretch yourself. You have to you have to try mm-hmm. new things. And ultimately, that's very hard for Lena, who is a withdrawn, anxious rule follower. Yeah. Which is just a really, it's a really hard to be that kind of person and also an artist. It's very challenging. Absolutely. <laughs> so now, Bailey, you were yes. quite a serious artist as a teenager. Um, yeah, I, I went to art school in high school. So tell me about your experience uh, as a budding artist reading these books as a teen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I re- like I definitely like had sort of an aspirational um, like alignment with Lena. I definitely so I was an artist who like was very self critical and like, which is interesting because like Lena is self critical in a lot of ways. She's not that self critical about her art. So I definitely, like, had a bit of a, like, oh, like, she's so good, but I'm not actually very good kind of thing going on in my brain. And, uh, like, there were certain, there are certain ways that, like, Lena, like, talks about doing art that don't resonate with the ways in which I do art. But right. definitely, like, the way she talks about it in this book particularly, and I do actually wonder if, like, this is the book that Amber shares maybe, like, talked more to actual artists because how specifically like how she talks about the process of like when you draw something you need to like look at what it actually looks like and draw that Mm -hmm. and not what you think it looks like I very much can relate with like learning that process in high school and like learning that like what you think things look like and what they actually look like are not the same and you Mm -hmm. have to like learn to draw what you actually see as opposed to what you think an object looks like and I really like that process as it is reflected and what a good metaphor that is for like (laughs) learning to see your family as people right like because yes that process of learning to draw what you actually see instead of what you think you should see is very valuable in art but it's also very valuable in the the process of growth that is seeing your parents as humans and seeing your mm-hmm. siblings as humans and, you know, seeing your grandparents as humans who have stories and depth and complexity. And that is, I think, I'm not a neuroscience scientist, but I think a significant part of the brain development in your late teens as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's such a such a good metaphor. My favorite scene when she's drawing the portraits is when she's drawing her mother. Mm. It's so beautifully written. And it's the first portrait she does. Her mother, who's kind of trying to be supportive, but also doesn't want to fight with her dad. And, you know, just is kind of just trying to be very neutral. 
and be uh-huh. nice to everybody and stay out of it. Um, and she does this this beautiful sort of categorizing of all the parts where she's seeing her mother as a contrast of soft and hard where her mother is soft and is a nourishing approachable person but really wants to be hard and you know she talks about the the hard granite countertop and the hard wedding band and the hard diamond earrings and her soft face and her soft um, elbows you know softening on the counter and I know that (laughs) These books um, do not have a good relationship with bodies and being good to bodies. But I think that scene, this, she's soft, but she wants to be hard. For me, as a teenager, summed up diet culture really well for me. (laughs) And like when I think of the like wealthy suburban mom who's kind of trying to keep up appearances which is how we see Ari I you know diet culture is definitely a part of that um an experience of just about every Mediterranean woman I know is constantly fighting your genes to to uh, genetics not the genes that magically fit everybody to like you know be skinny (laughs) um and I remember reading that and just being like huh that's really that's something to me um so metaphorically I love that scene I think it works really really well uh and I don't know I just wanted to talk about that fair I don't have a point I just think it's a nice scene it's a really (laughs) I love all of the scenes of of Lena doing the drawings I also I do very much like the scene with her and Effie which is like because Lena is a person who avoids talking about things and avoids difficult conversations and avoids talking about her feelings and things. But the the scene where she draws Effie and sort of realizes in trying to draw Effie that Effie is mad at her. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is this really breakthrough moment where, like, the two of them are able to actually, like, talk about everything that's happening in their family and in their lives um, and have this, like, really beautiful, like, sister moment. And, like, you get Lena's very, like, cute little reflection. It's, like, the good thing. Something It's something, like, the good thing about getting people to tell you what's wrong is that you can, like, say something to make it a little bit better or something. And I, I like the, her sort of realizing that, like, it's really valuable, like, just being able to, like, hear what other people are going through. I love Effie, and I'm very excited for next week when she actually gets her actual storyline i love her i love her as a foil to all the angst you know like Mm -hmm. i think we talked about this before but like b and tibby and lena and carmen are so so existential always they're always having (laughs) existential crises and then effie is just like yeah i'm pissed because my sister's moving away and leaving me with my crazy parents (laughs) yeah and it's just like yes there we go that's what a 15 year old is like (laughs) i mean it's not what i was like as a 15 year old i was i was an absolutely existential (laughs) mess but it's nice because there are teenagers like that they exist i've I've been told Mm -hmm. they're just not pisces (sighs) (laughs) Um, i also do like that we get these little glimpses of the fact that like Lena does actually have a, an actual sister who she is quite close yeah. with. It's an interesting little like detail. Before we move on from Lena, I think we need to talk about 
the fucking ableism in this book. Yeah. Yeah, I think we do. So we talked about Anik being a great figure in um, Lena's life, but Anik is also a wheelchair user, and it's handled very badly. It's the, like, abled fantasy of how wheelchair users want to be interacted with, is what it is. Yeah, it's so bad, beginning to end. I mean, there's there's one moment that I actually really, really like that we've talked a little bit about that I will get into. Mm-hmm. But just the whole, like, it's just, it is underlaid by this attitude of, like, it is the correct and, like, reasonable and expected thing to, like, ask people prying medical questions. Yeah, so, like, the, um, the very first time that we meet Anik, Lena is like... I know I should ask her what happened and if it was an accident and if she was born this way and if she can have babies. But like, I'm just too overwhelmed to ask. And I'm just like, no, you absolutely should not ask anybody any of those questions (laughs) (laughs) under any circumstances. There's a weird obsession with fertility like in this book, but also the way that people think about disability true on both counts i mean i don't know if i'm saying that because i just read a weird eugenicist book but like (laughs) not this one a different one um but like the like i don't know anik to me has big queer vibes oh yeah like anik is absolutely a lesbian and lena is like i wonder if there's a man who thinks she's beautiful i wonder if she can have a baby and i'm just like she is an extremely (laughs) talented artist yeah yeah, that part, and like, and then of course, then they have she has to shoehorn in this last scene where Lena does ask her what happened to her, and Anik is like, "I thought you would never ask me." And it's like, talk to a wheelchair user. Ninety nine percent of them do not appreciate people asking them those yeah. kinds of questions. Yeah, just don't. One one thing that I think is done well that mm-hmm. I like is um, there's this the first portrait Lena draws is of Anik because mm-hmm. Anik is like I want to see how you do with a portrait and Lena draws a portrait of her and because she doesn't know what to do and she's sort of stammering and awkward she doesn't draw Anik's wheelchair and Anik looks at it and she's like why didn't you draw my chair like it's there it's part of me it's weird not to draw it. Yeah. Um, and I like that because it's like, yes, true. Yeah. 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 That one, that <laughs> is maybe the only part that she did research for. Um, yeah. But yeah, Anik is like, hey, why didn't you draw the chair? Lena, you have to draw the chair. And that is sort of what starts her on her project of seeing people as they are, drawing them as they are, mm-hmm. and not trying to compromise on her art. Yeah. Which is, it's interesting because we talked about Tibby compromising on her art in the last one. True. And feeling like she had to compromise on her art to spare her family's feelings. But with Lena, somehow she doesn't have to compromise on her art and it's okay. And I'm not really sure... I mean, I guess if she was drawing caricatures, that might be different, you know, because like Tibby's was was comedic. But I I find mm-hmm. it really weird how those are handled differently. 
See, I actually, I maybe I'm totally forgetting the conversation, but I don't see the plotline in the second book as Tibby having to compromise on her art to spare her family's feelings. But that's going to be a whole different conversation. I think, like, what I was saying, like, yes, no, Tibby is Tibby is not being honest with herself about what art she wants to make in in the mm-hmm. second book, and she does something for her friends. But I, my exception was just with the fact that, like. Tibby making a movie about how hurt she's feeling towards her mother is mm. valid. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I didn't love how that was treated as just mean-spirited. But yeah. Mm. but no, I, But I also feel like there's some of the attitude that like art has to be deep and noble and full of feeling to be valid. Mm. Fair. I don't know. Maybe I'm just making making up stuff to be mad at now. And I can't just let people <laughs> like things. No, I think that there definitely is, like, a bit of that, um, like, that thread in these books, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there's definitely a bit of that in these books. I I think that's fair. I also really like that Lena's portrait series comes to her in a dream. Yeah. And then she does it, and then she realizes the dream. It's really nice. Also, Mm -hmm. I cannot believe that I forgot to mention this. But as an artistic teenager who lived in New England, RISD was like my dream school for a very long mm. time. So also seeing Lena get into RISD and get a scholarship is very satisfying because RISD is a really good school. And Fair. it's nice to be able to imagine her there. And cool. as a teenager, I definitely like glommed onto that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, didn't apply to RISD because like... I don't know. My dad said I shouldn't. However. Oh, okay. That just reminded me, though. Talking about dads just reminded me. There is, and then we can stop, but there is a depiction Mm -hmm. of immigrant parent culture that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever in these books. And that is, that is Lena's parents, whose her dad's dad had a restaurant and he became Mm -hmm. a lawyer and he wants Lena to go into restauranting. And he's like, restaurant business is good work. You should do this. It's ridiculous. Like, okay. (laughs) My dad, my dad was an immigrant child of parents who did food business and had a restaurant at one point. And he worked in restaurants. He worked in restaurants in Paris. Like, he worked in the food industry quite a lot as a young man because it was the family business. Um, And my dad... would be like yeah you're a great cook never ever ever become a cook it will suck the soul out of you you will be exhausted the hours are ridiculous get something cushy get something with a sound like it's not the idea that Lena's dad went to law school and became a high-powered lawyer which like also all the men in this book are lawyers true every single man in this book is a lawyer <laughs> men are only lawyers in this universe Lawyer is the one career that exists for men. Women can't wear pants and men must be lawyers. Lawyer or professor who who preys on their students. Yeah, those are the two two options for men. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the idea that her dad would go through all that work, go to law school, become a successful lawyer, and then be like, you know what you should do, honey? You should work at the mom and pop Greek restaurant in town is absurd it is laughable it is ridiculous and i i don't like she had this a little bit with costas's story too where he's like oh yeah i got into the london school of economics but my parents don't understand why i don't want to be a blacksmith i'm just like have you ever fucking talked 
have you talked to a single immigrant family? Like, do you know? Like, my entire narrative growing up was work hard so you can have a better life. Like, no, you don't. I would be like, maybe I do want to go to culinary arts school. And my dad would be like, are you fucking stupid? Like, <laughs> oh, it's, rid- it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. <laughs> We haven't talked about Tibby at all. (laughs) (laughs) Tibby does not have an interesting storyline in this book. I don't have anything interesting to say about Tibby. I like Catherine, but this book is just like another book of Tibby treating Brian like shit because he's not hot enough yet. And the next book is the book where he gets hotter and dates and then Tibby's like, oh shit. So that's not what this book is. I mean, okay, what is this book? That's how I see this book. I see this this book book as Tibby being like, okay, he's a passable human guy and he likes my little siblings, but ugh. This book is like, it's Tibby. I don't like Tibby's storyline because I don't think it, like, picks one thing well. Because I think it's halfway trying to be, like, it halfway feels like a story where it's like, oh, I have realized that one of my best friends has feelings for me and I don't. And that is awkward. And I'm trying to figure out how to navigate it. But then it's also supposed to be like she also loves him, but she's afraid of growing up or something. Regardless, I don't think it's a good storyline. I do not <laughs> think the problem is that she doesn't think he's hot enough. However. <laughs> I mean, she sure talks about it a lot. But she talks about him being hot. No, she talks like, okay. The way I feel about it is in the first book, she's like, oh, Brian, what a dork. And in the second book, she's like, oh, Brian, what a dork. But at least he broke his glasses. And in the third book, he's like, oh, Brian, what a dork. But at least he has a better haircut and I buy his outfits. And in the fourth book, she's like, oh, shit, Brian's hot. And I'm just like, well, yes. Like 15-year-olds who grow up to be 18-year-olds usually become better looking because 14 is an objectively terrible age for all of us. Yes, true. But yeah, Tibby does not have an interesting storyline in this book. Um. Um, I will say that one of my all-time favorite moments remains when Catherine says, and then I crushed my skull. (laughs) Catherine is great. Catherine is the star of Tibby's storyline. Yes, true. Yeah, she's just, you know, one of them always gets the back burner. I feel like Tibby gets the back burner a lot. No, that's not true. That's not true at all. No, I don't think that's true. Yeah, that's not true. She definitely gets the back burner in this book. She does, and that's um, okay. She can deal and with that's the back, fair. Burner. back burner. Yeah. Before before we end, I must... Can I go on a very small rant? Yes. It's very important and dear to my heart. I felt this way about the first book, and I feel it even more about this book. I am so mad at how the summer camp makes no fucking sense. <laughs> Truly. This is this is a theme in this book, eh? There's a lot of, have you done your research? It's like, she has Eric and Bridget supervising water sports, as well as a weekend overnight rafting trip. Neither of them have lifeguarding quals. Neither of them probably even have first aid quals. Um, and it's like, no, this would not happen. Also, the campers are 10 to 14, and who is supervising them in their cabins at night? It seems like nobody. Um, I just, yeah. <laughs> I think I think the supervision 
I'm willing to give it a pass that we just don't see it because like it's it seems like it's an all boys camp. So Bridget wouldn't be supervising the cabin. But but the evidence is that Eric is also in a staff only cabin. And so why is why is Bridget not then at one of the girls cabins? Because it is a co-ed camp. Oh, is it a co-ed camp? Um, well, then I don't know. But it is nonsense. Also, it is nonsense. Yes. That they are. Like if there were. Yeah. OK, but like, OK, but like, like, yes, they should all have. Like, I don't understand how they don't have, have, uh, like, Red Cross emergency training. Because when I worked at a day camp, I had to get first aid qualified. Like, and I was working yeah. at a day camp and there was no outdoors. But um, anyway, yes, camp. It's fair. It's not well researched. It's not meant to be realistic. But it, as somebody who worked at summer camps for, like, a decade and makes me very angry. <laughs> um, also the part where Bridget is going to ask to have her partner switched and the boss is like, I only take medical or professional reasons. And she doesn't just immediately say, actually, he used to be my coach and we also used to date. So professionally, we don't have the best relationship. Like, yeah, no, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. No. If you send your kid to a camp and they pull this kind of nonsense, don't send your kid to that camp. No. They won't be no. safe. Yes. Thank you all for indulging my rant because it's very important. It's very important. <laughs> all right. So overall, positive read through. There's a bunch of nonsense, mm. but this one's pretty fun. Yeah. It has less nonsense than the previous two. Oh, just wait. Because you know which one is coming next. <laughs> the one that's full of nonsense. So much nonsense, but also hashtag Carmen is gay. Also true. Most importantly, Carmen is gay. All right. Which we all always knew, but... Yes. Carmen is gay. And all of her storylines with boys are going to make sense once we acknowledge that. Thanks for listening to Yeah! If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at yapodcast and individually at tefferbear and at thebalesosaurus. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. During this read-through, which we are halfway through now, uh, every new Patreon subscriber gets to ask for a embarrassing or otherwise cringy high school story from yours truly, and also Bailey will reveal their high school art. So this is a great time to sign up for Patreon. If you're already a patron and you want this content, um, tell one of your friends to start supporting us make your partner start supporting us i don't know get it done i believe in you be like lena <laughs> you can get all kinds of great perks including early access to bonus content shout outs guest appearances and more head to patreon.com slash podcast to donate shout out to our patrons katherine reshi kat mcguire lizzie tenhove chantal thomas maddie dever megan jane emily patton and emmett cameron we have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at Tee Public. You can also always support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Please do leave a review um, on the app that you use. Reviews do a lot to boost our visibility and to increase our numbers, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe on Spotify and share this episode with a friend. Maybe a friend who um, wears the same pants? Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. 
You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by me, Tevra Jemian, and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. Bye. Bye. Dungeons, Dragons, Canada, the Multiverse Theory, Corgis, Queer Representation, Reconciliation, Angels, Demons, Squirrels, Moose, Moose and Squirrels, Sorcerers, Dinosaurs, Forests, Giants, Rogues, Warlocks, Plains, Sewers, Lavender, Natural Toonie, a Canadian Dungeons and Dragons podcast, right here on the Upford Network. Hello, my name is Stefan, and please join me every week for my podcast, Some Good Friends, a show where I talk to some good friends of mine. And I think you're going to like them just as much as I do, because they're crazy, and they're wacky, and they're hilarious, and they're definitely real people, and not characters made up just for the sake of comedy. It comes out every Monday, early in the morning.